Hello, friends. Today we have an amazing guest. His name is Corey Allen, and you may have heard him before from his podcast, The Astral Hustle, which I was a guest on. Also, he's been a, a fucking regular on the Aubrey Marcus podcast. I think he's gone on 16 or 17 times. He was one of the first guys that I jumped on as a guest when I first got to on it. I've been meaning to have him on this show for quite some time because he has a wealth of knowledge in uh, mindfulness practices, figuring shit out in life, plant medicines. He is a dialed dude. And, you know, there's something to people that you meet or come across where you realize they just feel different. There's a feel that they have in a way about them that kind of transmutes a quality that is calming and just feels fucking good to be around. And I always feel that way when I'm around Corey. And I, I mean that genuinely. He has a brand new book out. It's called Now is the Way. We dive right into the book. We talk about all sorts of cool stuff from his childhood growing up to how he got here. Everyone's got a path and his story is fantastic. I know you guys are going to dig this one. And remember, folks, there's a few ways you can support this show. One of which is to click subscribe, never miss an episode or run it twice a week. Uh, second, you can hit a five-star rating and write something lovely about the show that you like, something maybe you've learned or a way that the show has helped you change your life, and that helps other people to see it on iTunes and everywhere else this podcast is on. Also, support our awesome sponsors. We've got a couple new ones today that I want to talk about and another old goodie. So first, let's just jump right in. Vital Farms is an amazing company and they make uh, very high quality food products. Vital Farms is right down the street from Onnit. We've been serving Vital Farms hard-boiled eggs and butter in the Onnit Cafe for years. Vital Farms has been making pasture-raised butter for years and believes that great ghee starts with better butter. And that all starts with the cows, pasture-raised cows that are raised to graze on actual pastures, like cows should be. Vital Farms ghee is clean and versatile butter oil for every culinary need. It is made by cooking down butter to remove the water and milk solids, clarifying, which means it's lactose and casein-free. This stuff tastes fucking fantastic. And the geniuses at Vital Farms put it in a fucking squeeze bottle. How has no one ever thought of this before? It is quite possibly one of my favorite ways to consume good, healthy fats. I throw it on my steaks. I cook my eggs in it. I cook bear's beef liverwurst in it. It's just fantastic. So look for Vital Farms Ghee in a squeeze bottle exclusively at Whole Foods Market in original and Himalayan pink salt and visit vitalfarms.com slash ghee. That's vitalfarms.com slash G-H-E. E-E for a chance to win on it products and a year's supply of Vital Farms Ghee for free. Also, my homies at Felix Gray have returned to the show as a sponsor. Felix Gray is probably the best looking blue blocker glasses that I've ever worn or ever seen for that matter. In fact, you wouldn't know that they're blue blocking glasses just from looking at them. They don't have some douchey red frame that makes you look like you're... Uh, <laughs> on Mars in, in Total Recall. There's nothing like that. They're just absolutely fantastic. They're very stylish. And again, there's a lot of reasons for that. You may not realize it, but the average American blasts their eyes with bright screens for 11 hours every fucking day. When you consider how much our day revolves around our devices, it doesn't seem so crazy. I got an iPhone, an iMac, a TV, a blah, blah, blah. You get the point. Not to mention all this fake light that we're under all day long. The fact is we cannot eliminate extensive screen time from our lives, but you can protect your eyes from it with a pair of Felix Gray blue light filtering glasses available in both non-prescription and prescription. Don't go another day looking at screens without the help from Felix Gray's. Go to felixgrayglasses.com slash Kyle. That's felixgrayglasses.com slash Kyle, and you'll get free shipping and 30 days risk-free returns or exchanges. 
Also, don't forget the very best CBD on the planet. Wave is awesome. They have a 100% organic and 100% solvent-free CBD that is full spectrum that gives you all the goodies, CBD, CBG, CBN, all the terpenes and things that can help boost your immune system, lower systemic inflammation, and help you sleep like a fucking baby. Go to wave.com. It's W-A-A-Y-B.com slash Kyle, and that'll get you 10% off everything in the store. They've got phenomenal flavors like cinnamon, lemon. They've even got unflavored. There's nothing nasty in it. Only the good stuff. Wave.com slash Kyle, 10% off. Thank you guys for tuning in. I know you guys are going to dig this episode with my man, Corey Allen. It is phenomenal. And as always, you got to get it. Onnit.com, 10% off all food products and all supplements at onnit.com. Don't waste another minute. Get yourself a bottle of New Mood. Get yourself a bottle of melatonin and get your sleep right. Onnit.com slash Kyle for 10% off all supplements and food products. Enjoy the show. Well, let's let's jump right in here. We've we've uh, we've we've already had a conversation about stuff that we can't get into on the podcast, um, <laughs> or we won't get into. I shouldn't say can't uh, regarding Mother Earth, and maybe we'll circle back to that when we talk about ayahuasca. Yeah. But um, you've got a new book out. Yeah. It's phenomenal. I'm about halfway through it. Um, I want to talk about how you grew up and kind of what led you down this path, because sure. I don't know if it, if it was, you know, you had parents that meditated, I think in the Bhagavad Gita, they talk about that. Like if, and I don't, there are two, there, I don't know, there are many, many uh, thoughts on this, but if you believe in karma, mm-hmm. there are many people on this planet that believe in karma. And so the idea in the Bhagavad Gita is that if you did well in a previous life, when you incarnated again, you would be born into parents who already meditated and right. already were on the path. So you'd be able to leapfrog up a level. Paul Selig's guides teach differently. They teach that that there is no karma because they teach a love that lo- knows no record of wrong. Mm-hmm. So if, if you embody Christ consciousness or however you want to call it, that ultimately God doesn't give a fuck. Mm-hmm. God loves you no matter what. Right. It's you know? like love without judgment. Yeah, exactly. It's the ultimate highest unconditional love would not punish you for mistakes you made in a life where you were doing the best that you could right. with what you had. Yeah. Well, let's jump in. I mean, talk about growing up. What kind of parents did you have? What was life like? Where were you at? Uh, I was in Austin. uh, And basically, neither of my parents, no one in my entire family has ever read a philosophy book, has ever meditated, has ever touched. And they don't even, they didn't even read. To this day. Yeah. Damn. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And so, uh, no, yeah, no one in in any, not one single person in my entire family on either side ever really even read much less uh so my brother of course but you know previous generations mm-hmm. um yeah no interest in that my my dad uh my parents separated whenever i was four and uh my dad was kind of like this tarantino movie character kind of dallas cowboy crazy uh businessman type of fella um heavy set republican alpha dog old school type of guy always had multiple guns on him at all times and uh, it's kind of a, actually a funny hidden talent. You know, everyone has a secret talent. Mine is that I uh, am a expert marksman, <laughs> which is the last thing that many people would think. And it's because growing up, I uh, anytime I would go visit my dad, all we would do would be shoot handguns and shotguns and rifles. Or after we were done there, we would go pack ammunition like, in uh, at his home because he had this this room in his house. Where and this is you know in the late '80s, early '90s, so he's uh, on on early on that type of thing. But pack ammunition, pack shotgun shells, and then go to the range and just shoot. And he had a whole gun safe full of everything you can imagine. 
and so, yeah, like that was, so I, I'm an expert marksman. So it, when Armageddon comes, you know, I, you know <laughs> that's safe. a good skill to have. That's a great skill um, to have. Um, but anyway, so he very much had this, this mentality of, you know, unfortunately, you know, I think causally, you know, he had some racism uh, in him and definitely, and had this, this attitude of like, kill or be killed. And also at the same time, he had this weird, dark, twisted humor about it, where it was all like, like a good story that actually one of his friends told at his funeral, he died by the way. Um, <laughs> one of dead. his friends told at his funeral was that they were hunting in Argentina and uh, all of his buddies were like on a plane in one of them, like they all of course were taking like nitroglycerin tablets because they all had heart conditions because they all basically just <laughs> ate steak and drank wine every night and were super stressed and hypertension. And uh, uh, <laughs> this is a story I think adequate for, for your podcast is that like him and his buddies used to go eat lunch and then go to the bathroom and weigh themselves before and then go in and then come out and weigh themselves after and see who could lose the <laughs> most weight. The that most. was like their, yeah, their, their, uh, their competition. Anyway, so they're on this flight and one of them starts like kind of having like a, an issue and like kind of passes out. And my dad's like, no, no, don't. Like if he died, like there's nothing we can really do. We're out in this remote area. Like, and I got to get back to Texas. So you know, like, let's not tell any of the flight attendants. Like, if he's dead, he's dead. Like, if he makes it, he makes it. But I don't want to delay our flight. And, you know, and, were, and all his friends are like, okay, that's cool. And, you know, and they, everyone agreed. Yeah, they're like, oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. We can't and, save him now. Yep. And so, um, anyway, but it's interesting is that, you know, he going through life like that, uh, as, a, as a kid, I saw the negative repercussions of that. I saw, like, he was always, he literally always had a gun on him or two. One in his car, he slept with a shotgun under his bed. He always sat with his back to the wall in restaurants. He had no windows on the front of his house. And it's all because he had fun screwing people over, you know, uh, for, uh, for a living. And as a little kid, I remember one time him telling me like, <laughs> that just some of the stuff he was up to at work. And then I went to school and they were like, what's your father do? What's your father do? And it's like, okay, Corey in kindergarten or whatever, what's your father do? I was like, he uh, told a guy to go on vacation and then had his office cleared out and put into a warehouse so that whenever he got <laughs> back, that he would be shocked at the fact that all of his stuff was gone. His office is empty. And then my dad went to Las Vegas. <laughs> that was like to party. Like, that's what he does for a living, I guess. Um, and so that's, and, you know, he would tell me like he carried a gun because he never knew what he was going to see when he came around the corner. And he always wanted to be prepared. Mm. And... Um, you know, like he, it was that old school system of he was buddies with the Dallas chief of police. Uh, my understanding was that they gave him a badge just so he could carry his gun wherever he wanted to. And, um, you know, that was kind of how he, how he did it. And what I learned from that really, like I just kind of observing it, I don't know, intuitively was that, man, I want the opposite of that because I saw the fear and the anxiousness and like the suffering ultimately. And I wanted to not live my life to where when I go around the corner, I'm scared and have to be prepared of what I might find. I want to go around the corner and be excited of who I might run into. Yeah. You know, and I really saw the suffering that that way of living created for my brother, for me, for my mom. And um, so that was a great teacher to me. Uh, what's interesting is that he he did die uh, and actually write about it in the book um, is that he did die just kind of out of nowhere and from, you know, heart condition, of course. And it's interesting is that now I, you know, I've been able to love him more since he's been dead. Uh, not because of, uh, 
anything other than my understanding, you know, I, you know, cause everything in our lives, man, is like peace, all that stuff, compassion. It all is perspective and understanding and the higher view and the more deeply you can understand someone's own narrative, how they've kind of authored their life and the causality, the things in their environment that have caused them to live a certain way that you can, it's sort of like, uh, you know, you can't beat that saying, if you can't be, how are you going to be mad at a tornado? It's like, you know, it's a tornado just, it naturally occurs and it does create destruction, but there's no real use in being yelling at a tornado, right? Or yelling at God for the Ex tornado. Exactly. Or at exactly. For the tornado. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a good teacher for me. Um, and then my mom, you know, she was just doing the best she could with two young boys and working, you know, no college experience and trying to work and put groceries on credit cards and stuff our whole life just so that she could kind of make it. And then that was that. Um, I found because of a lot of that, you know, there was a lot of other stuff, a lot of traumas and things like that um, that I experienced. And um, because of that, I began, I became very kind of retreated into myself when I was younger. And I was always, you know, there's the blank slate idea. I think that we seem to kind of be predisposed to having, as we're born, certain personality traits. Even it could be the genetic switch bank of our brains, you know, or something like that. I was always thinking in kind of far out ways. I remember a distinct uh, first moment of kind of meta awareness I had was whenever I was a little kid, I went on vacation and I went to this hotel, uh, this one of those big massive hotels like on the, in the Gulf Coast or whatever. With And I was there with my mom, my brother, and I remember that my brother had gotten sunburned or something. So he was chilling in the hotel and my mom was like, well, we need to go out and do this. And I was like, okay, I'll go with you. So I remember we were driving away and I looked back at the hotel and I remember thinking, it's weird that like my brother's in that giant building, in that room, in a single room by himself right now, laying on bed, watching TV. And like from the camera of his mind, he's like in this whole other experience and it's in there happening right now, even though the, I'm in this car driving away from that building. It's so strange. And I... I just had that kind of spontaneous, effortless sort of awareness of like, wow, we all are living our own camera view of our life. <laughs> we all have the headset on, you know? Yeah. And um, so I started thinking in those ways, you know, and it actually really led to a lot of challenges because going to a little school, you know, like a daycare whenever I was a kid, they were trying to push some like Christian agendas on on the kids there. How old were you when you had this realization? I was probably like six or something. Oh shit! Okay, yeah. super <laughs> yeah. early. Yeah. Okay. And going to these little like you know this little daycares and stuff like that, trying to push a Christian agenda. And I remember saying like, I don't think they're. I, was, I remember being like, that just doesn't make sense to me. And they were like, would be really angry and they'd punish me and put me in the corner for not you know going with it. And they'd be like, well, like how about this? I'd say like, how about, if there's a God, then how about the lights in this room will just go out real quick, just as a little high five. And they'd be like, you're in trouble. Get out <laughs> of here. Job. Go sit in the hallway. You know, I was like, all right, well, this is what life is going to be like. You know, I'm going to think weird shit and I'm going to be forced to go sit in the hallway. Um, but that I started thinking that way kind of early. And as I entered society more going through the school system, like, I, that, that all just got more and more intense because of fighting with teachers. I have this massive issue with authority, hence my self-employment, you know, and all that type of stuff. And, um, I, you know, life was challenging. I get this for everyone in high school, but I started realizing one day, totally randomly, I overheard this conversation of some people saying, if you could have dinner with like four people living or dead, who would it be? I, one of those people was Jesus. Another person was Nietzsche. I remember like hearing that 
and thinking that's an interesting name. And so as a teenager, I was like walking through a bookstore. I happened to see a book that just said Nietzsche on the back. I was like, that's, there's that name. I'm gonna go check that out. And I remember reading it and I opened up. I was like, oh my God, the first time in my life, this is how I think. It's not like what I think, but it's, it's the math of how my mind works. And it, I became obsessed, unhealthily so, with reading philosophy. After I soaked all that up, I, of course, was like, well, okay, well, the Western bookshelf is done. Let's go to the Eastern bookshelf, see what they have. And this is in the, in the early 90s-ish, you know? So there's no, like, there's no internet. <laughs> it was literally <laughs> like, well, what do they talk about in this book? Who are the names? Who are some of the things? And like, maybe I could just figure something else out. And um, anyway, so then I started eating, uh, reading uh, and eating Eastern philosophy. And I was like, okay, this is not only how I think, but this is what I think. This is my intuition of operating for the world. And I realized that through reading Eastern philosophy, just kind of autodidactically, and <laughs> I like to say autodidactically, not because I like to say, like, oh, I figured all this out on my own. I'm awesome. I like to take responsibility for my own idiocy. <laughs> you know? And so... Explain what autodidactic Oh, just someone is. that teaches themselves okay. things. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I like to say, look, I figured all this out on my own. I'm sure there's huge gaps of stuff that I missed. I'm an idiot. I just, you know, I'm doing my best here. And so uh, I realized that my own mind and that my inner life was mine. And I had kind of a Viktor Frankl moment of like, no matter what's going on outside of my life, no matter what I'm forced to interact with or the circumstances, my inner life, I have control of that. That is where my freedom lies, you know? You can be in chains and being tortured and whatever, but you can still think whatever you want. And I realized that, okay, if I can undo some of this stuff and I can get some clarity and understand myself, this can become like my sanctuary, right? My, my inner life can be my sanctuary. And I started meditating just from reading like descriptions of it in old, like, you know, Zen Buddhist books and stuff like that, like Suzuki and things like that. And um, I was reading, like, I started just, I figured out just kind of intuitively again, I guess, that consciousness was where it was at. Because I started reading psychology and semantics and, you know, things, all neuroscience and all this stuff. Because I just was like, oh, this is, these are all the components. These are the, the composites that create this thing I'm trying to figure out. And I knew that when I was reading something, it was like discipline. It was like, you know, you hear a fighter, you know, like you, you know, you see, I don't know, I keep getting my ass kicked. I'm going to go back to the gym, go back to the gym, go back to the gym. I don't care what it takes. I'm going to keep getting my ass kicked until I can actually feel confident and I can push through and, and turn this corner with, you know, my game. And I was like that with knowledge. I was like, I'm going to keep reading philosophy, keep reading science of the mind, keep doing it, keep doing it. And it was tough. Like, I didn't know what I was reading. I, I never went to college. I still haven't. And it's like, I'm going to keep reading this 800 book, page book on semantics until I understand it. And I knew that I was really turning that corner whenever I would read and I would feel high. Like I would read mm. something like some 100 year old book, on, you know, on, on uh, uh, psychology or something like that. And I'd feel stoned afterwards. And I was like, that's my brain expanding. That's like the, I started realizing that's the edge, that's the map of my consciousness, kind of the horizon is pushing back and I'm getting new territory here. And that became this crazy thing that I started chasing, you know? And so um, the more I did that, the more I eventually realized like, oh, it's consciousness that I'm interested in. This, all this stuff, like this, that's the, the umbrella that all this stuff is under. And I became just obsessed with consciousness. And I realized that, the more that um, I, I worked on this and, and worked on this inner life, and it was really out of just like 
personal sovereignty and safety at first because I was in a lot of pain. And I realized like, this pain is lessening. I'm beginning to be able to take control of my thinking and I'm able to kind of start responding to my life instead of just being caught in this momentum of reaction to this thing and reacting to this thing. And the more I did that, the more I realized like, oh, wait a second, I'm different now. Like I'm different than I was last year. And I started comparing the change of like how I felt a year ago to how I felt today. I was like, I'm better. Like I feel better. I feel more clear-minded. I feel like more positive. And I kept working at it. And I feel, oh, a year later, like I'm a different person now. And I just realized that you could literally think your way into a better life. And so it all completely, it all happened on its own. I had no, and the weirdest thing about it was that I never talked to anyone about it because no one in my life, one, would understand it. Not, not in the intellectual way, but just like it was not in their, like their, their ecosystem of thought. Yeah. And two, um, you know, at that time, like it was not like, I don't know, I, it would just be seen as weird or something that needed to be handled, you know? And like, for example, um, whenever I was 14, uh, I, <laughs> I was put in a mental institution for you know, a short time because I was basically just like totally fine. Like I thought I was fine. Um, I did go through a period of basically of only sleeping like an hour a night for a, for a long period of time. <laughs> um, but it was because they were, I don't know, my mom was like freaked out by me essentially. Mm. And so, and so was my dad. And so they were like, oh, this, something's wrong. You know, he's, yeah. he's a weirdo. And I couldn't understand it. Yeah. Talk a bit about, I mean, we, we've covered a lot here. You, one thing that I've come to realize that, that you stumbled upon or maybe you were guided to or directed to is, is this idea that whatever tools we have, whether it be meditation, float tanks, some form of stillness, and then into plant medicines and breath work and different things that can shift our state of being, is that it quiets the noise of life. Right. And we all have suffering. We yeah. all have some form of suffering, even from something as simple as, the wanting of things, yeah, right. And to be all, born is to suffer. Yeah. So let's let's dive into that. What was your? You talked a bit about your dad's suffering. What was your suffering at this point in time growing up? What did you really struggle with? It was all like complete emotional incompatibility with with my own life. I felt anxious because of just my family system. I was everything was kind of um, ruled by fear and threats and manipulation. And growing up in that, it's one of those weird things where, you know, if you grow up rich, you have a, 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 a materialistic kind of viewpoint of the world. If you grow up in one other way, you get this inherent viewpoint of the world. And I grew up from this way of having just crazy amounts of anxiety and always having to be aware, like, am I being manipulated intellectually or emotionally right now? Am I being, how is this threat? Like, why am I being threatened? I didn't do anything, you know? And that made me very skeptical of everyone and um having uh you know feeling loved conditionally where it's like the switch is flipped on and off it's like if you're being good basically not causing a disruption then you're not in trouble if you do anything that you you know is not acceptable then you're in trouble the love switch is turned off and now it's you know punishment time yeah domingo ruiz goes yeah. into that quite a bit yeah right? yeah and you know, man, like, so that was, 
I grew up seeing the world in that way of being really skeptical, hence my magnetism towards Nietzsche being like, yeah, that's right. It philosophize with a hammer. You know? <laughs> and um, just like in, in insane anxiety too. Like I used to coming home, you know, uh, I got really into music at the same time as philosophy. And that was like, I became obsessed with that. I would just like play my guitar for like four, four hours a day. And I would read for four hours a day and just, I would fall asleep with books you know, I would like get in the bathtub to try and like chill my anxiety and relax a little bit while I was reading. I'd fall asleep. My book would fall in the, I have like the Tibetan book of the dead is all crunk, crinkled <laughs> up in my library. Cause you know, it's like, I was just doing this stuff just constantly, obsessively, really obsessively. It was actually unhealthy. Um, I touched a little bit about that, that in the book too, is that like, when you go so into something with such white hot focus, it does have its benefit. But ultimately I realized that that is, you're d one reason for doing that is ignoring other things either you can't or you're not ready to acknowledge. And for me, it was basically just my my heart and mind was not ready at that point. I couldn't plug into it. So anyway, feeling, yeah, man, just extreme anxiety, extreme, almost depersonalization, you know, mm -hmm. at that time. And in, as a teen, I, you know, I started t doing psychedelics a lot, you know, because in the 90s, people were partying in Austin. And um that was another, it was like my own kind of little mental ecosystem that I was in and just trying to figure it out. And yeah, so it was just working through that anxiety, working through that fear and and trying to build that bridge back to like, okay, it's cool to not, it's okay to not be skeptical of everyone. It's, you're not, everyone isn't trying to manipulate you. There isn't a reason to be scared like all the time of like what might happen next. And that's the that's the really damaging thing. And I think all of us experience that to some degree or another is that you have this kind of unhealthy uh, attachment to um, like Bowlby's theory of attachment. It's really fascinating. Um, but whenever you get in this kind of, the idea is that we're supposed to feel rooted and connected to our parents. And that's where the unconditional love is. And that allows us to go out into the world and then test things out. And if things don't go well, we always can go back to home. Yeah, home base. Yeah. yeah. But if you don't have a good attachment then with your, with your family, then what happens is you get a destructive attachment to where that's no longer safe, but the world isn't safe either. So you basically get, lo you get locked in this place of like not being able to count on the world and not trusting the world and not being able to trust the family and not being able to trust that, you know, the unconditional part of that. And that creates this, auto-regulation of your emotional state because you're like, I'm a singularity human. I'm a singularity person. And if if you're okay, Kyle, if you're calm, then I'm calm and I'm happy because that's what I'm worried about, right? And if that person's sad, then I need to, I'm like, oh, okay, now I gotta, I'm feeling sad because of that. And I need to like work with that. And if that person's anxious, then it makes me anxious. And I gotta go like, oh God, how we need to work on this together. So you're trying to send out these grappling hooks to try and find that home base and kind of co-regulate with another, every person that's around you at all times. Gabor Mate talks a lot about this in a book called Hold On To Your Kids, mm. which I think is phenomenal for all parents out there. But yeah, he talks about that attachment. Nice. And when that, when that attachment is broken, <clears throat> either due to the punishment reward system, yeah. you know, the, the conditional love or to other reasons, uh, your kids will find that elsewhere. And oftentimes they look for that in their friends. Yeah, and that when definitely. It, that's exactly what happens. I mean, it was the case for me in high school where, 
everything you do is predicated upon what you think other people think of you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's 100% in, in not just trying to make friends. Like obviously there are certain skill sets that are really important in life. Jordan Peterson talks about those. Sam Harris talks about those like things that you can give to your kids are uh, one of the skill sets, how to make friends is critically important. Yeah. It's critically important for them their entire fucking lives. Right. Right. But how you go about that makes all the difference in the world, because if your happiness is dependent upon what other people think of you, right. you're failing Yeah. at any and stage. You, of and the you game. end up getting into a lot of bad situations. Yeah. Yeah, man, definitely. That's a, a really important uh, piece of it is how you, friends become your family. You know, you, that's the only place you can find that thing because, okay, well, this dude has always been cool to me, you know, and we have a good time and I think I can, we can be connected. And that was how I, I totally grew up like as, with friends as family because mm-hmm. of that reason. Yeah. So you touched on psychedelics at a young age. When I remember when I was in high school, there was some people, you know, doing mushrooms. I'd, yeah. I'd go to the park and uh, maybe we were going to smoke some pot. I probably only smoked weed like three or four times in high school. But um, my parents who had done a shit ton of drugs mm. and never told me about it, <laughs> always just to tell me, don't do drugs. They're bad and they'll ruin your testosterone. And you'll suck at football and all that shit. And so <laughs> I've never heard that one before. <laughs> like, they'll ruin your testosterone. <laughs> it'll lower your testosterone. So I was like, oh, okay. You know, I'm reading all the bodybuilder mags. I'm like, all right. Clearly it was sense. a lie. <laughs> <laughs> it's a total lie. And um, fuck, yeah, I was, I was thinking about that. And, you know, the kids, plus it's like, it's like Rogan told me, and I'm not trying to name drop, but, sure, but sure. when when we were um, talking about acid and he's like, I've never done it before because everybody who's offered it is some fucking hippie who hasn't showered yeah. in 40 days and has a beard <laughs> down to the floor. And he's like, hey, man, you know, and I'm like, yeah. OK, I get that. Because in high school, that was my experience. When I looked at people who did psychedelics, I thought of them as total druggies, mm. like losers. Yeah. Right. And these weren't like, I mean, maybe it was a lot of the skate crowd, that kind of stuff. Sure. And I don't think of skaters as losers, but. Um, the appearance to me was these guys aren't getting shit done. And um, so I avoided it then. But I remember the first time I did it, I think I was 18 or 19. It was at a house party, no intention, just to get high. <laughs> I was drinking too. And it was for sure, I don't believe in bad, you know, like like a, a good experience, bad experience when yeah. you have when you have an experience. The, and the done saying, the there, right are, there are no bad trips, uh-huh. only challenging ones. Yeah, <laughs> that was for sure the most <laughs> the most challenging experience because um, I didn't know what to expect, and I didn't know at that you know obviously things are dose dependent, but the fact that I was you're for you're not in control, right? right? So you can either submit to that and surrender and let go, which is critical in, in all plant medicines and, and in life in general. Right. Um, or you can fight it, mm-hmm. right? And much of us fight life just as we fight the psychedelic experience. And so fighting that was was incredibly challenging. But talk a bit about those early experiences. You know, <clears throat> you mentioned partying and things like that. And a lot of, I think a lot of kids want, they instinctively know that they need to get out of their head. They instinctively know that there's something deeper in life. Yeah. And so they look to those things, even alcohol, to shift their consciousness, mm-hmm. right? Because we we all need to get, we all find altered states, whether sure. that's a tribe without plant medicines that uses fucking bullet ants on a sleeve yeah. or anything, or well, they dance without water for definitely. you know 24 hours till they start to trip. Like we're looking for altered experiences and altered states of consciousness. What were those first experiences like? Were they, yeah. you know, what you, how you experience it now or how are yeah. they different? I mean, what's funny too is that people like might hear you say that we all seek altered states of consciousness, right? And think, I don't, I don't know about that. But 
someone sitting on their couch and eating a pint of ice cream is doing just that. You know, it comes in yeah. every possible form. The morning form. cup of joe. Exactly. You're trying exactly. to shift your consciousness. Yeah. And it's fucking caffeine's a hell of a drug. Oh, it's the best one. <laughs> and most transformative. Uh, and yeah, so basically I think that it was, you know, there was a lot of uh, LSD around whenever I was uh, in high school. And there was no... I never drank. Like my friends and I, we never <laughs> drank. It was just that was, there was just LSD, you know. And basically, what happened to me was that I I was never like going crazy, you know. There were times where I would uh, set up my guitar <laughs> rig and go over to, like my friend's house, and we would all you know take LSD, and then I would like crank it up all the way and have all these effects pedals and just like shred and have this giant wall of noise, and they would sit there and like lay down and just have this like crazy psychedelic train of a, of a sound bath going down. Mm. And that's, that's like a way to party. Um, but a lot of it was just sitting around talking and like thinking about stuff. And I was just very drawn to that, you know, that way of things. And it's kind of like Jason Silva. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. And I would have like some of the dumbest slash most amazing insights ever, which would be sitting there like, like looking at this bottle on the table and be like, that's not that far away. <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> that's right there, man. <laughs> and that's it. That's it. Sounds dumb, but it's actually amazing, you know? And so some of the, the real actual useful things that I can see that unfolded into some real meaningful insights for me was, um, I was actually just talking about this with Donald Hoffman, uh, is that I would, I, you know, was under the influence of some friends and there was this poster of like the horsehead nebula, like a big gaseous space thing. And I remember looking at it and being like, hmm, that looks like uh, Jabba the Hutt wearing a purple wig, <laughs> you know, and then go <laughs> go leave and come back. And be like, that looks like someone reading the storyboards of Armageddon or Apocalypse Now and Godfather 1 and 2 to three crickets, you know, or whatever. <laughs> and it's like, go back and ah, that's the alligator wearing a hat made of meat. Um, <laughs> and then waking up the next day and looking at that, that horsehead nebula poster, and be like, oh, that just looks like a gaseous star again. And I remember realizing like, oh, wait a second. Like our mind is just this kaleidoscope of impressions. It's not an illusion. It's just an impression. And it's very flexible. And it's like that that uh, classic kind of visual uh, illusion test thing where it's like, is it two faces or is it a vase? You know, it's like you can see it both ways, depending on how you look at it. And kind of from that point on, I started seeing it in three ways. You know, it's like it's two faces, it's a vase, and it's also two faces and a vase at the same time. And I realized that that's how our perception works. So it was a real breakthrough for me to start understanding that I was making a perception of life, mm -hmm. even down to, you know, of course, visually, but even down to my emotional state, the way of thinking and responding to kind of the, the cyclical feedback I had with my own existential experience was fluid and it stretched in and out. And it was always changing, always different based upon what was in my body. And that could be natural uh, chemicals or just, you know, daily life or experiences or whatever. So it was very useful and opening in that way. Yeah, no doubt about it. I think, uh, uh, Ruiz talks about that too in Mastery of Love, how our perception, there's, there's three different perceptions in a relationship of two people, my perception of my partner right, and what I project onto them to be their projection of, of me and mm -hmm. what they project onto me and our projection as a whole of what our relationship is That's right. in together. But in reality, there is me, which is far greater than any interpretation of someone else's perception of me. Yeah. And there's her with, and she's far greater than any interpretation or perception I have of her and totally. far more than that. And in both directions, right? There's the high self where 
unlimited growth, unlimited potential, unlimited to, ability to change and to shift and to become aware. And then the shadow, all the traits that I don't see or don't want to see that can exist there. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's just on a human level. Yeah. But it's on every other level too. Totally. Totally, man. And that, that paradigm you just talked about is why it's so silly to try and be cool. You know, it's cause like, what, what are you doing? It's like, I'm trying to, I'm being cool right now. It's like <laughs> for who and for what it's like, well, I have this idea of what everyone else thinks is cool. And so I'm going to try and do that. And it's like, well, what are they doing? Well, they're doing what everyone, what they think everyone else thinks is cool. It's like, well, what is, who was actually cool? People who don't give a shit and do it and be themselves. Well, then what are you doing? You know what I mean? It's like, and if you just, yeah, map it's, that, and it's, if and you, it's not a fake, don't give yeah, a shit, right? Yeah, like yeah. There's if, a, it's acceptance, man. Like that's people have asked me a lot in life, which is really weird because I don't think I'm like a cool person, but people say like, what is coolness? Like, what is it? I'm like, it's just accepting yourself. It's just being you, who you are. And it's not in doing it without any attitude, right? It's like, that's not cool. That's of course a projection as well, but just like being able to like let go and just be okay with what you are. And that's whenever your originality, because as you mentioned, like we are all in, by definition, we're all infinite. We're unknown. We can never know all of who we are because we're always experiencing life. So everything, you know, as we experience, as we're having this conversation right now, you and I are both learning new things. We're feeling new things. There's always information flowing in. And so we're infinite, you know, our resonance with life itself creates an infinite, an infinity within each of us. And that means that each of us are this doorway to infinite possibility and originality because only you have walked in your footsteps and experienced what you've experienced. Only I have my perspective on life and so forth. And so if you are able to accept that and be yourself and be comfortable with that, which, you know, it does take some work, some undoing, not doing, but undoing, then your originality really can thrive in in the world. And that's whenever you get someone like Anthony Bourdain, you get someone like Bill Murray or, or whoever, these people who everyone's like, oh, wow, they're such an amazing person. It's like, yeah, because they're allowing themselves to be this individual person. And that's what we're all wanting to be ultimately, I think, to begin with. Yeah. How do you, how do you, uh, how do you begin to unpack that? The undoing? The undoing? Well, it's, a, um, I think that cultivating negative space is really useful. So like meditation is something that's really handy in that, uh, of course, you know, I think psychedelics have that effect on people because it just kind of gets you out of your camera view of your mind of that. We're all like locked in our first person narrative of experience. And we think that this river of awareness that we're, that is arising within us is what there is in quotes. Whenever really it's just this frequency, like the, the world outside of our skin is this crazy like radio signal and our nervous system is like an antenna just tuning in this tiny little piece of it, right? And once you begin to experience that, then you ask, oh, wait a second. I am also have this, this radio knob on me that's turning all the time and I'm just dialing in different parts of this giant you know frequency. And uh, you begin to realize like, oh, I'm fluid as a person. Like just my consciousness, my way of seeing the world is always changing. And once you begin to recognize that, you can sort of get out of that. I need to stick to this shape and be this thing and be this character and identify my identity as this thing and lock on to all these ideas of who you should be, which honestly, you had no say in for the most part to begin with. Like we're all born and told who we should be, what our lives should be like, what we should do in the world, what our ethics and morals should be before we even hardly know how to talk. 
You know, our parents are just pounding that stuff into our head. Our society, our cultural reinforcements are just pounding all that stuff into our heads. And we have no say in the matter. And it it takes a bit of recognizing that we were programmed but get then to begin to unprogram. Um, and so meditation is another great way to do it because it creates the same amount of ne internal negative space. You get a little distance from compulsion, the compulsion of being. You know, most people are just living in this long, like just lengths of chain of, of reaction, 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 reaction. And through meditation, you're able to stop and say, okay, hold on a second. Let me be aware of what's arising right now. What am I thinking? And why would I say this to this person? Or what could I say to this person to help them, to, to create more equanimity and more compassion? Why would I want to make that decision? Maybe there's another way to approach life. Maybe I can approach this whole game in a completely different way. And that space between thinking and arising thoughts and actually executing your, your thoughts. I actually call that the mindfulness gap, where you can, and that's how you can author your life in a beautiful way, is whenever you have a negative arising thought, we feel like you want to talk shit about somebody, you want to do you know, something bad or whatever it might be, you know, in bad, of course, is relative, but do something you know is destructive. You can literally just, if you have the negative space in your mind that arises, you can literally just let it go. Throw that shit in the mindfulness gap. But okay, next. Our minds have 40,000 thoughts a day, right? So wait three seconds and you'll have another idea. It's not like we're short on, like this yeah. is the problem is we have too many thoughts. So if yeah. you have a bad one, let it go. Another one will be another good or, or whatever one will be around the corner before you're even done processing the fact that you let go of the bad one. And um, it's just a, yeah, it's an amazing way to be able to really shape how you think in the world. And because of the, the fact that our brains wire themselves through neuroplasticity, repeated habitual behavior, the roadways of our mind actually start growing into a shape to try and help and facilitate that way of thinking. Once you can get into this pattern and this habit of thinking in a positive way, your brain literally grows into a positive way of seeing the world and your entire perspective starts shifting. You know, that's like one of the things I put in the book is that we're not our thoughts. We're our thoughts that we put into action. You could think about nasty shit all day, negative shit all day. But as long as what you're aware and you're, you have this awareness, what you're putting into the world and how you're affecting other people is the, the good part of yourself, the part of you that can touch on love. Even if someone has a, a horrible internal matrix that, you know, through no fault of their own or through fault of their own, there's all of us have this ember inherently in us because in order to have negative, there must be a polarity, a balance in all things. And sometimes that's smaller, sometimes that's bigger. But for a battery, battery to have energy, it's got to have a negative and a positive end or else there's no charge. Each of us have that charge within us. So if you have this tiny pinhole of love or positivity, maybe it's shrouded and protected in armor. If you can listen to that and hear that through the noise of the pain and the negativity and start choosing to turn to that, that that's where your actions come from. That's how your thoughts, you can let all the negative ones and let those things blaze on and pass and turn the thoughts that come from that place into action. That's who you are because that's what other people experience. And that's how you start building what you are in the world. Yeah. That reminds me of the native American tale of the two wolves, mm -hmm. equally sized, equally matched. Yeah. One's good. One's bad. One's black, one white. And uh, which one, which one wins? Right. Right. It's the one that you feed. That's right. And that's, that's exactly it. I think of, um, I think of a lot of these things as we, no one teaches us this shit. 
right. when we grow up. No one teaches us that we're not our thoughts. No one teaches us that we don't, if we experience a thought that we don't like, we don't have to grab it. Right. And, you know, we talk about going down the rabbit hole with psychedelics and people that are averse to that oftentimes don't realize they go down the rabbit hole all the fucking time. Mm -hmm. When you're driving your car, when you're on the shitter and you start spinning out of control in a fucking yeah. whirlwind of shitty thoughts, That's right. you've gone down the rabbit hole. You've effectively grabbed on and latched on to something yeah, that isn't you, right? Exactly. And that that is a state of um it's a state of unawareness, but it's also a state of of some form of psychosis. Right. The longer you stay there, right? And yeah. the, I think the more ways we find to to quiet that noise mm -hmm. and to figure out like where is something stemming from and then to latch on to the thing that we know is best for ourselves best for our community best for our families whatever that thought is that does good for the world right that's how we can be what we wish to see totally and it's crazy how you know if someone even needs a, a self-centered reason to act in that way if you start honoring the the you know white wolf inside of you the gray wolf um, then you become known in the ecosystem of your own life as that type of person. And that's how people respond to you. It's like, we're all like all of our lives. It's like, it's, I call the sitcom reality where all of us have like, oh, there's Kyle. He's this guy that thinks this way a lot of times and acts like this and dresses and, you know, wears speedos and stuff in the sitcom of my life. Like that's what your character is. Right. And so I, I, as an actor, I interact with you as that character so that we'll have a good story. And everyone, that's how everyone treats and kind of understands everyone else. Like, oh, this is this guy's character or this woman's character, and this is who they are. And so people are prepared to engage with you kind of in the cosmic drama, as, as Hinduism would say, in that way. If you are an asshole, people see you coming and they go, oh God, this guy is always negative. He's an asshole. Let's close off not interact with him, be skeptical, not give any warmth. If you're a, a funny person who's always warm and in good spirits and trying to, you know, be uh, be cool and whatever, then they see you and they get excited. They say, hey, there's Kyle. What's up, man? How are you doing? Like, just like we did whenever we, you know, saw each other this morning. And so if you can honor that good part of yourself and start, you know, bringing that to your life, then your world gets better. It actually can be, you know, kind of solipsistic if you want. It's like your world gets better because everyone around you starts seeing you as someone that they want to be around and they're excited to see. And so as you do your daily walk, the world actually becomes a better place. And as a, a nice byproduct of that is that you're actually being a good person in the world. Yeah, yeah, it's you funny. Can, you think of like the, the what is the motive? Those kind of things. Yeah, and you can like, even come at it from a it, selfish it fucking, point of view. It always starts with you, mm -hmm. right? Like the the idea that you can't truly love someone unless you love yourself right. is completely right. true, yeah. right? And you can love other people, but it's a different kind of love. And it might even be an attached love or yeah. an incorrect love, a love that, that does hold a record of wrong, a love that does uh, withdraw upon conditional changes, you know, and, and all those things. But when you do the work on yourself, that allows you to then see the world differently. It allows you to operate differently. It allows you to be better. And yeah. the people around you gravitate towards that. Yeah. I mean, I, I talk about energy on the show and I don't know, This I took over a fitness show. Right. And uh, I'm not sure, you know, there's a lot of pro wrestlers and shit like that that were on the show before. And I don't think, I know there's plenty of pro wrestlers that meditate and are down, but um, so it's not a knock on pro wrestling. But this idea of energy, like if someone walks into a room and they're a little off or they're fucking fuming, you might 
have be on the lookout for that Definitely. guy. You know, like yeah. without fucking saying a word, you would know if you're tuned in, like, I don't know, I get a weird feeling around that person. Yeah. Right. And if somebody comes in that you've never met before, but they're fucking glowing and they got a big shit eating grin on their face <laughs> and they're laughing and telling stories, you're like, oh, I want to stand by that guy. I want to stand by that girl. You know, like what's she saying? Let me go over by her. Absolutely. That kind of thing. Right. So we all are drawn to these these forces, you know, that, that are within ourselves. Each of us is our own universe, but mm -hmm. as we get in, in contact with other people and that's truthfully, one of the feelings I have around you, you know, oh, Aubrey you, introduced me to you. Yeah. He's introduced me to Ted Decker. He's introduced me to Parangi. There are Dan Engel. There are certain people in this world. When you meet them, you're like, Oh shit, I want to talk with that guy more, <laughs> you know? You, and I think that, that that's a true testament of the work that you've done. Yeah. No doubt about it. Thank you. Thank you, man. I really appreciate that. Um, and what's crazy, too, is what you're saying is that if even someone is not uh, interested in or they hear you say the word energy and they're sort of like, mm, I'm, I'm switching off now to something else. Uh, that is actually a you can you can uh, take that down to a kind of a scientific level, you know, uh, and also if you think about energy in the body, you know, if a wrestler is listening to this, you know, the, the, you've got your body, that's an important part of the system, but the energy in quotes part, that's what's up in your head and in your heart, you know, and those are vital, vital parts to the body. Um, more of us talking to, to Jason Havey one time, the COO of Onnit, we were talking about kind of how I fit into the Onnit world. And he was like, this company is all about nutrition and we've got all the body stuff, but the work you're doing is our head, you know, and this is a really useful thing for you to be involved with us because of that. And you look at the energy in quotes of someone who is, makes you feel uncomfortable. And I thought about this a lot because I was very curious, like, why is someone who seems like elevated? What is that? Like, what is the quietness of that person? Alternatively, what is someone who makes you really uncomfortable that you don't even know? Like you can be on the subway in New York and someone walks in and you're like, oh, that guy has 30 heads in his, you know, in his, in his refrigerator. <laughs> Let's not make eye contact with him. Um, and, uh, you know, if you think about it on a biological level, all of us, we're all recognizing like facial expressions, all the different, you know, muscular uh, aspects of the body, how we're holding ourselves. We actually can sense a lot of times how someone's blood pressure is moving. You know, you know, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. you, we have a subconscious understanding from an animalistic level of what's going on in someone's body just on a physical level. And that allows us to understand kind of pre-intellectualization where someone's at. And it's just an ancient part of our brain that's a protection mechanism. Because if you're in the wild, you want to be able to recognize a threat or something. And we recognize it like that because we've had 200,000 years to work on it. And so whenever you see someone who is really, we sense is like, hmm, that person seems aggro. Like they are, they are feeling that way. And you feel that way for a reason. You should listen to it. What's interesting is that alternatively, whenever you meet someone who you were so kind to say that you feel that way, whenever you and I get together, um, that all that other stuff is gone the other direction. It's like your internal matrix, the muscles in your face, your blood pressure, the focus of your pupils, you know, the way that you engage kind of intuitively with your environment, it's all clearly slower, calmer, more tuned in. And there do it doesn't have the dissonance and the animal aggression and kind of the the frenzy that someone who is in a state of aggression would have. So it's kind of curious how you can find these people who seem super, their, you know, quote unquote energy is really dialed up and tuned in. And it's, it literally is on a, on a physiological yeah. level. Yeah. You know? And at, I think at basic survival levels, you realize, oh, I can take my guard down. Right. 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 And just from there, you realize, oh, there's much more to that. And you start to embody some of that peace, some of that laughter, some of that joy. Yeah. 
and that's infectious, you know? Totally. Like we, we gravitate towards those people because they impact us in a positive way without saying a fucking word. Yeah. Just by <laughs> yeah. being in their presence. Yeah, right? that's the best kind. Yeah. Well, shit, brother. Let's talk about your new book. Let's do we it. Only got a, we only got 10 minutes here. All right. We'll be in and out. You wrote, uh, Now is the Way. That's right. And it seems to me that any book with the title Now <laughs> is, is, has impacted me in a very positive way. Awesome. Uh, Power of Now. And uh, shit, there's one, another one was Now. Well, we'll just focus on those we'll just two. Focus on, let's just focus on... <laughs> let's just focus oh, on... Oh, yeah. Be here now. Ron Doss. Exactly. Exactly. Those are the two. Ah, Thank you, Ryan Job. Be here now and, uh, and uh, The Power of Now. Uh, phenomenal books. But talk yeah. about talk about your book, Now is the Way. Yeah. Essentially, I wrote it because of everything we're talking about. You know, people are suffering uh, anxiety rates, depression rates, feelings of isolation and distraction are through the roof. You know, and that's because technology has exploded it's blown right by us in our evolution and one of the things i put in there is that uh you know our bio biology is trying to catch up we have this kind of evolutionary hangover we're dealing with right we're trying to catch up with how the modern world has evolved so quickly and one of the things i put in there is that there are still hunter-gatherer tribes in the amazon rainforest while at the same time, Amazon.com will deliver your groceries to your front door in two hours. Like, how can those things coexist, right? But it's just because technology has gotten crazy, right? Um, and so the pacing of life has become so much more fast. The amount of kind of attention thieves and the different directions we're pulled in have gotten so, has become so intense that people are really feeling fragmented. They, they're feeling pulled in all these different directions. And that also maps onto social media, you know, the images and ideas of how people see themselves in the world versus the curated world that we see online and all this stuff. And it doesn't have to be this way, right? We don't have to feel this thing, even though we're getting sucked into that more and more. And it's designed to suck us into it because mm -hmm. attention is a new currency. People are making money with your attention online. So algorithmically at a level that we can't even imagine. It's like, there's a thing called computational inference which is super evil, which is like what Facebook uses, Google, you know, all these algorithms that basically based upon your behavior and your movements online, they know what you're looking for before you do. And so they serve up an ad that that will serve you what you need before you even recognize that you need it. You know, it's like if you're feeling depressed, you go look for sneakers online. That's what makes you feel better. They'll recognize how long you sit on certain photos, what you like, who you interact with. Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, this is a pattern of depression. So as they're entering into that state, show them an ad for sneakers. So like before you even get there, you're already, it's, so it's crazy, right? Yeah. So I recognize the, all these forms of suffering because of my past experience and that I figured out ways to work through those things and get on the other side of those things. And now is the way, is the map I use to do that. And being in an interesting position for my podcast, you know, the Astro Hustle um, which is a, that name confuses people, but after it was in the New York Times, you know, it is what it is, right? <laughs> but it's supposed to be a quadruple entendre for a reason. I want it to be confusing because I want you, I do that evil thing that makes you actually think for yourself. That's what I like to do. <laughs> um, it's like, what does that mean? Hmm. What's it mean to me? You know? Um, and so as I started talking about these things over the years in my podcast, just kind of sharing some of my personal experiences and how I got through them, I started getting all this feedback from listeners saying, hey, man, that, that thing that you said, that actually, not only am I experiencing that too, but that really like how you got out of it, that really turned a key in my mind and it helped me get out of it. And as I heard that, I started realizing, oh, wait a second, these aren't just things I experienced. These are universal 
human challenges. Everyone experiences this type of suffering, all this shit in just a you know different way or another, but we all go through this, right? So I wanted to, to create this guide that, to help share all this information I knew and I know can help people transform in these universal experiences, you know? And I'm really interested in wiping away all the jargon. And because some of this stuff, because we're dealing with the mind, it's nebulous, right? It's it's kind of ethereal. And, and like you work out in the gym, you can measure your bicep and see what if you're getting growth or not. But with your mind, you, you have to, um, it's a little bit more uh, intangible than that. You have to like stop and pause. Okay, am I feeling happier? Am I like, has my life scaled in a good direction? Um, and so because it's slippery like that, it's so easy to read some similar things on similar topics that are just kind of gobbledygook, that are feel good, kind of positive thinking stuff that don't really convert to actual real change. And so I like things that are functional. I like things that you can really feel. And so I made it all crystal, crystal clear and just simple. And I spent a lot of time taking, you know, taking kind of a, a lead from some of people who inspire me to break down these huge ideas into single sentences, you know, things that are like, here's all this stuff just par you know, parsed out in the most crystal clear way where anyone can understand it and really use it to transform the way that they're thinking and the way that they're living and stop kind of reacting to their life and start responding to it and begin to author their future and make the changes they want. Um, another different thing, what makes it, you know, people ask me, you know, the subtitle is an unconventional approach to modern mindfulness. It's modern because I'm talking about it and what it means to be a person living in the modern world today. Mm. A lot of these great books, the ones that you mentioned, those are written 40, 50 years ago, you know? And so it's like they apply to that world and, you know, they still hold timeless truths, but talking about these things in a modern perspective from a modern mind, you know, from my age group, our generation, and being able to really connect them and communicate them in a way that people living today can understand is really important. The other thing that makes it, the thing that makes it unconventional is it's really, I really built a bridge from knowing to doing. Because a lot of the you know books that talk about things like this, like, oh, well, here's all these ideas, go enjoy. You know, it's like, well, no, that's cool. That's great. But the piece that's missing is like, how do you convert that into your life? Mm -hmm. And in some ways, I almost modeled this, my book, like a business book or like a strategy book. And it really, <laughs> it is modeled in that way. Because I took it like, it's modeled, um, the sections are now, which describes the present moment like what is presence again it's one of those weird kind of slippery things to define it really talks about it gets someone to experience it feel the wow of now you know right now in the moment the next section is there which talks about how we get lost it helps you identify the ways that you can get snared up and go down these bad rabbit holes in your life that pull you away from yourself uh, the here section is how you reel yourself back in if you do get lost and you do get into this pattern of bad behavior and just um, you know feeling negative and whatever, how can you reel yourself back in, pull yourself back to the present and start taking control and get back to that peace, get back to that self-awareness and start really authoring your life again? And then the how section is where it really kicks off into action. That's two parts. One is called 12 Ways to Now, which are 12 guiding principles that if you even inserted one of them into your daily being, things would change. But, and I even say in there, like, don't do all these at once, kind of spend time, introduce these new things, try these things out. Um, and it can be, they're even, you know, there's simple things that are elaborated upon, like, don't let your past keep you from your future. So when people identify with what they were, and it keeps them from being who they are today, 
and prevents them from being who they can be in the future. And being lost in this idea of yourself won't allow you to enjoy the abundance of what you're experiencing right now, you know? Um, even another example from 12 Ways Now is like, try new things that challenge you. Because as we go through life, we kind of learn what we like, we learn what's comfortable, and that's great. But what happens is that we get a little too comfortable with that stuff and that part of our brain that needs to snap on and identify and assess something new gets lazy. It starts to kind of atrophy. And so eat weird stuff, travel to weird places, meet new people, talk to different things, read a different book on a different topic, you know, get into a different, try a different kind of music, whatever it is, keep trying new things in your life, add new things to your day, because that brings you right to the present because your brain, like if you had never been and, you know, if you never traveled to an Asian country before and you go to Shanghai, like you better believe you're going to be in the present moment. You're going to be like, oh, God, how do I how do I get to my hotel? How do I talk? How do I order lunch? Like, how do I, what do I do? You know, how do I cross the street? You know, like because your brain kicks on and it goes, OK, cut away all that. The illusions of the, the future or the past get right now and deal with what's right in front of you. So on a, in a smaller way, you can do that every day by just kind of engaging with new information. Um, so then the second part to the how section is called on meditation, which I really took a cue from Stephen King's on writing. That's like kind of a, a high five to him that that title is because he doesn't tell you how to write in that book. He talks about writing and he sets you up to actually write for yourself. Mm. And I feel like there's so many words have been written about meditation that kind of um, make it more challenging for people to get into it because it's like trying to describe your own first person experience. You can't do it, man. You know, the only thing you can do is set someone up a, a good scaffolding and, and set up a way for them to try it themselves, because it's the only way you're going to experience it. And it feels like the more that you color what that experience should be like, the harder it's going to be for someone to get to their own authentic connection with it. It's like telling somebody uh, the exact details of your psychedelic experience exactly. with this particular medicine that they're yeah. about to do for the very first time. And then you just set a tone for what their expectation is rather than giving them guidelines that help them get to a place where they can have their own experience. Totally, totally. It's like, go have my dream. <laughs> it's like, I can't. <laughs> you lay down this way, you go to bed yeah, at this time, right. you take this tea at night. Yeah. 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 So that's it, man. That's the whole the whole book pretty much from, from top to bottom. And, and, um, it was crazy. I wrote, uh, and I've, I'm learning this is a bit more common, but it's because of part of it is my insane tenacity and drive to just do the best that I can. And another big part of it, honestly, is just my immense respect and integrity I have for humans and for people and for what I'm trying to do is that I wrote three manuscripts, you know, because I thought, the first one, it's like, well, I've never written in this long a form before. And I wrote it, 50,000 words. Like, well, that's done. Let's delete that and try, start over and try again. I just started again from scratch. And I was like, oh, now I see the voice coming through. Now I'm figuring out how to connect my mind and my heart and my thoughts and all this stuff. And when I got done with that one, I was like, well, that's better, you know? But now I've, I kind of was just like seeing what I could get away with almost, you know? Uh, and now I'm like, okay, that's cool. I'm glad I got that kind of like bratty, like, hey, I understand the mechanics of writing, <laughs> you know, like, and I have, I can articulate weird ideas out of my system. Let's move that away and let's really drop into the heart and just let it all come out in just that right way where it's like us sitting down right here. And that's, a, uh, I think, another fresh part of it is like, I, as I said, I have so much respect for the human experience because I know all that, I know what all that shit feels like, you know, I, I've been through it. 
Yeah, I'm still going through it. We all are. And I, I really have a, a, a deep, deep respect for it. And so I made it like a conversation. It's like, I wanted to be like, we're going to sit down and just talk about this shit because that's really all writing is, right? Is it's like, it's this psychic transmission that like the, the book, the pages are like a mirror. And it's like, you have this ne- this idea in your brain that just bounces off and goes into someone else's head, you know? <laughs> and so just made it like a conversation, you know? I love it, brother. Yeah. Well, we'll link to your book in the show notes. Uh, we'll link to the Astral Hustle in the show notes. Listen, if you haven't already, I'm sure people are aware of you just from Aubrey's podcast and I've been on yours before in the yeah. past. Um, where can people find you online? Corey-Allen.com and uh, Hey Corey Allen is my social media on all platforms. Awesome, brother. Well, we'll yeah. definitely have you back on. It's been amazing awesome. having you. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Thank you, Kyle.